anything that you can do to streamline that checkout process is only going to help your conversion, which is only going to help your revenue. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 64, and today's guest is Eric Lodier. Eric's a longtime industry friend, and he's currently a director at Alex Partners. He's my first guest to join the show from the south of France, and also the first one to be both an accomplished actor and opera singer. Eric's had a number of digital marketing roles, and he'll offer up some great insights about the future of digital. Before we get started, a quick thank you, as always, to Max Brandstetter of the Wow Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready? Break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Eric Lodier. Eric is a former professional actor and opera singer who parlayed a career in the performing arts into a web development startup serving the arts and entertainment industries. He has held roles of increasing responsibility in e-commerce and marketing ever since, including multiple C-level executive positions at publicly traded retailers and hyper-growth D2C brands alike. In 2019, Eric pivoted his career towards consulting, and he now serves as a director at Alex Partners, based out of their Paris office. He currently lives in the south of France. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for making the time. So you are a guest. I've done 63 shows or so. You are a, a, the first guest that I am uh, doing uh, an interview where the uh, the guest resides in the south of France. That must be pretty nice. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's really beautiful here, and uh, we've been here about a year, and we're loving it. That's fantastic. And and you also are the first guest to uh, to claim to be a former opera singer and a uh, and a, a soap opera star. Well, you know, I never claimed to be a star on a soap, so I had a, a very small role, but that lasted over the course of about five years. And it was, uh, it was a lot of fun, paid for my health insurance at the time. And, you know, that was, uh, that was ages ago, but it was quite an adventure. Oh, that sounds like a, a lot of fun. We usually will get into the first story, you know, kind of how people were uh, brought up, but l let's just dig on that uh, professional acting and the opera singer. How did you get into that? Uh, yeah, I did a musical in in high school, and things kind of you know caught fire there. I got really interested in it, and when I went to college, I, I discovered very quickly that the only way I was going to graduate is if I majored in drama because I, <laughs> I just couldn't bring myself to to study, and and uh, it was it was challenging. But I you know I'd found something that I really loved doing. And so I, I majored in drama, and, and as I got more into the acting side, I, I was taking voice lessons started singing a lot more and this this operatic voice started to emerge and ultimately I went to grad school for opera and during the summers you know when I wasn't in school I was finding professional works so I was getting paid as a professional actor and opera singer pretty early on you know in my my late teens and early 20s uh, so you know it sort of just naturally 
continued from there. After I finished grad school in opera, I moved to New York and, and found some work. Well, you have a voice uh, for sure. Uh, you can just hear it uh, through the podcast. You, you should start a podcast of your own with a, with a great voice like that. <laughs> I don't think I could pull it off as, as well as you and some of the others can, Mark. Uh, you starred in uh, Broadway National Touring Company of Beauty and the Beast. That must have been fantastic. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. I, I grew up uh, partly in the Washington, D.C. area, and I, I still remember from being a little kid, and my mom would drag me to the Kennedy Center to go watch a show, and I remember these, these red velvet seats that I would sit in, and I was usually bored to tears watching The King and I or, or some sort of show like that, and I ended up performing The Beast at the Kennedy Center in D.C., and we didn't leave in, in the area any, anymore. My mom flew up to see it. Woof. And that's, uh, that's emotional right. <laughs> to kind of, you know, have it all come home like that. It was, uh, it was amazing, you know, to, to get to do that in that kind of theater. Uh, and, and with that kind of meaning and importance, um, I, was, uh, I was really lucky. Very nice. The, the red velvet seats bring back uh, memories for me. Um, I'm thinking that it was Radio City when I was about five years old that probably had uh, these red velvet seats. And my grandparents used to take me uh, for the holiday show every year. I, I remember that as you were, were talking. So very cool memories. That's uh, that's great. So, you know, you talk about family and uh, and all. Where did you grow up? First, it was the Washington, D.C. sort of uh, metro area. And then uh, after that, we moved to Florida when I was 12. And so spent the rest of my childhood in Florida. You know, and my, my mom is still there, but we, uh, you know, I, I don't spend much time there anymore after high school. I went to college in North Carolina, went to grad school in Boston, moved to New York, uh, ended up in LA and in Houston before coming to France. So kind of played hopscotch around for a little bit and uh, we'll see how long we stay here. Well, you've seen the world, certainly in the United States and, uh, and now the world. So uh, awesome, uh, awesome story. You talk a little bit about, uh, you know, in some of the things that I've read, you talk um, about how you were able to leverage acting and singing into uh, what started to be a first consulting role. What was that like? It was accidental, right? Like, I, I think a lot of things happen that way. And, and sometimes you just got to pay attention. And so I, yeah, I had a, a decent acting and singing career going at the time. And it was uh, early 2000. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to publicize my career. And how am I going to do that? Well, I'm, I'm going to teach myself web design. And I'm going to build a website for myself. And it's going to have my agent. And here's when I'm on TV next. And, and just important information that people might want to know. And so I, I taught myself web design over the course of a few weeks. And this was, it was a site entirely in flash, right? To, to put this in proper time context. <laughs> and I put the site out there and shared it with, you know, my, my network, uh, which of course is via email, right? No social networks back then. And all of a sudden, all these actors and singers started approaching me and asking me to build sites for them, offering to pay me. And so little light bulb went off and I thought, well, this is something I can, I can do. And actually I, I'm really into it, really enjoy it. And one day I was on the set of One Life to Live, which is a soap opera that I did. And I was talking to one of the stars. 
she mentioned to me that she was starting a cosmetics line. And I said, do you have a website? And she's like, no. And I was like, well, let me show you what I do. And so we went to the control room, which was the only place in the building in 2000 that actually had internet access. Obviously, we weren't accessing on our phones or anything. And I showed her some of the stuff I'd done. She said, you're hired, like right then. And that became sort of my, that was my first e-commerce site. Uh, we took an e-commerce a couple months later. I built everything on Yahoo store. And, you know, it was, it was amazing because people would ask me, hey, can you do this? And I would say, yeah, yeah, sure. I can do that. <laughs> and of course, I had no idea, but I would figure it out. And there weren't many other options back then right? There was no Shopify. There's no Wix, right? You need a, a website. You got to come to somebody who can figure it out. And so I, I grew my consulting practice that way. And gradually I, I was doing more and more on the web development side and less and less on the performing side. And I, I was a lot happier, to be honest. It, it was a lot more stable and it was evolving, right? There was this continual new stuff that was happening in digital. And I got to grow up with that. And I, I got to see sort of the world change around me, which I, I found fascinating. And then of course, one day I realized I have no idea what I'm doing. And, and I, you know, I was getting more into the business side of things and, and I didn't have that background. So um, that's when I went to, to business school, got an MBA and you know, did my best to sort of tie things together. Yeah, you know, um, w one of the things about doing this podcast for me is I get to talk to a lot of people who have listened, and you know, we've kind of got this. Uh, my listeners have heard this before. You know, we've got this group of seasoned executives like you and I, let's say, and then we've got uh, because I do a lot of mentoring and and investing in early stage businesses. We've got a lot of younger people, and I think a story like yours is is so interesting because it gives people the perspective. If they're early in their career today, they're not quite sure what they want to do. They've started down one path. Um, and oftentimes they feel like, geez, I've started down a path. I can't pivot it. Um, and, you know, you've got a great story of, you know, starting in, in acting and singing and then, you know, moving into something that you really didn't know very much about, you know, web design um, and, and parlaying it into a very nice uh, career, which we'll get more into. So good stuff. So you had a, a stop at a brand called Eden Apparel uh, for uh, LVMH. Um, if I'm correct, that had a very well-known uh, founder. <laughs> this little musician known as Bono. Uh, yeah, that guy. Well, listen, in truth, uh, it, was, it was his wife, Allie, who was the real founder of the brand. Uh, you know, of course, Bono was involved. Uh, and and Ali was was wonderful and brilliant, but it was it was chiefly uh, her and Bono that that got this thing started. And uh, you, you know, I was I was hired as a consultant. I was hired as a consultant to literally build the e-commerce business from scratch. Again, this is pre Shopify, pre everything, right? And and at that point, I had some pretty decent coding skills, and so. I did front end and back end of the site in .NET and SQL Server, and I connected payment gateways and, and did all of that, that stuff uh, that, again, back then, you needed somebody like me to, to actually do. You know, I ended up staying three and a half years. And Mark, that's the first time that we met, because when I, when I left, I had prepared sort of a summary of what's happening in the web and where we are, and I was preparing that for you because you stepped in then to, to help the transition. 
Yeah, and thanks for uh, for bringing that full circle because I forgot where you and I first met. I actually thought it was uh, when you were at Francesca's, but you know, then when I was uh, prepping, I saw that you were at Eden and uh, Janice Sullivan, uh, who was, I guess, president at the time. She and I worked together at Warnico, so she had called me and said, you know, I had this great guy. He's leaving. Um, and so, yes, that's how, uh, that's how we met. And, and that was fun. That was an interesting, uh, brand. Yeah. You refer to, you know, that's kind of around 2010, I think when you left so much has changed in, you know, in 12 years in, in digital, and we'll talk a little bit about Alex partners, but where do you see, you know, we're 2000, you know, 22 now, um, a lot has changed even during, you know, COVID about omni channel. Are there one or two things that you think, uh, that are really on the, on the cusp of, of changing what we're doing in digital? There's, there's clearly a lot going on. I, I think one thought I keep coming back to is that in a few years, you and I are going to talk and we are gonna, we're going to reminisce and we're going to laugh about the, the olden days when you actually had to enter information onto the site in order to check out. It just seems so antiquated to me already. And it's felt antiquated for years because honestly, if I can put my thumb on the screen of my phone and it knows it's me, why can't everything associated with that, including payment, et cetera, automatically be transferred into the checkout process to streamline things? I mean, you talk about removing the friction from the checkout process. One of the things that I, I despise about shopping on a new site is that, oh God, I'm gonna have to like enter my information and it's gonna ask the same stuff. I mean, that's one of the, the prime draws of Amazon, right? Is just, I'm gonna buy it in one click and I'm done. It's all about efficiency and, and convenience for the customer. You know, I anticipate that a lot, we're gonna see that grow a lot. We're gonna see a lot of brands adopt that because anything that you can do to streamline that checkout process is only gonna help your conversion, which is only gonna help your revenue. I love it. Uh, I think that should be your new business, uh, working on the technology <laughs> of, and, and we're, look, we're, we're going to get to a point, and I don't know when it's going to be, where we're just going to think about, you know, what we want to buy. And, you know, I, I spent seven years at Steve Madden running the e-commerce business there. And, you know, that was kind of at the time when, you know, voice was becoming uh, a play. And I, I genuinely thought that we'd get to a point, and, and maybe we are to some degree, where I would be able to say, okay, Google or OK Siri or whatever, buy for me the the black suede shoes size 10 from Steve Madden and ship them to home using my X. And uh, magically it would show up at my door. And, you know, I'm not quite sure we're there yet, but that's got to be coming. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think anything that streamlines the process and makes it faster is worth doing and will be done. There are obviously technology hurdles in all of that, but if that's all it is, the solution will be found, right? The, the, the only real hurdles are consumer adoption and are people ready for it, et cetera. Technology, I, I, I don't think is a, uh, a realistic hurdle most of the time. You spent uh, some time at a brand that I uh, grew up with. Uh, my grandfather was a big shopper of Lacoste. He always uh, loved the uh, the alligator uh, on his uh, on his shirt. So uh, that was when when you were there. Was that mostly a wholesale company? 
So Mark, I, first I got to correct you. It is a crocodile. Okay. And in fact, when I, so when I, when I would do a, a speech at a conference or something like that during the time where I worked at Lacoste, the first question I would flash up on the screen was I would show a picture of the logo and I would say, what kind of animal is this? <laughs> and I would do a show of hands of, uh, you know, of, of crocodile versus alligator. And in the U.S., at least, it was almost always evenly split down the middle. I imagine if we do that in France, they're going to say, oh, it's a crocodile. But anyhow, it's, uh, that, that's a very common uh, misconception is that it's an alligator, not a crocodile. But to get to your, your actual question, it was an evolving business, which had done a very significant portion of its uh, revenue in wholesale. And I was shifting more and more towards retail and e-commerce. I don't know what the balance is now, um, but I know that, that there was a lot of motion in, in those numbers uh, in the, the years before I showed up and, and uh, the couple of years that I was there. Uh, but you know, it was, it was a, a fairly sizable uh, direct business at the time. How do you counsel, you know, companies that, you know, have a, a business that is wholesale, they want to be direct to consumer, you know, one of the biggest challenges, especially uh, if they're promotional in nature, is balancing that promotion as potentially it impacts uh, their wholesale retailers. Um, how do you help uh, brands think that through? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. Uh, I, I think that Part of what goes into this equation is the assortment of product that is offered in a wholesale channel versus a direct channel. There's a, there's a timing aspect of this. And I, I think one very good representation of this would be, for example, Amazon Marketplace versus what you're selling on your own site. You know, are you going to have uh, an exact match for every single thing that is going on Amazon? And it's going to be the exact some, same stuff that, that you have on your site. Every situation is different. And so I don't want to say anything unilateral. There's always the right way to do it. Uh, it's going to vary, but I would say largely, you're going to want to have some differentiation between those assortments. And you might have the things that are tried and true and they're proven sellers and you know, you've had them for years. And those are, in a sense, heroes on Amazon that uh, raise awareness of the brand. It's a discovery mechanism. They have a ton of reviews. So obviously, they're going to be surfaced pretty highly there. And they become an entry point into the brand where then, of course, on your own direct channel, whether that's in-store or whether on your own e-commerce e site, you're going to have the new arrivals, the new colors, things that just came out. And if somebody wants it, they have to come to you first on that. And in that case, you know, you're maybe not promoting because newness and promotion are, are you know, often a bit at odds, uh, as I think they should be. You know, that's, that's one of many ways to handle the situation. Uh, and again, every, every case is going to be different. You know, if for those of us that have uh, spent a lot of time in, in retail, uh, we probably all have had to deal with companies that were struggling uh, while we were there. And um, I, I think you've worked for a few of those uh, companies along the way. How do you keep your team, yourself, others around the business motivated when you've got a, a business, whether it's retail or otherwise, how do you keep them motivated? Yeah, you know what I would say is that when the CFO comes to me and says, "Okay, you need to cut thirty percent of your marketing budget," but oh by the way, we need you to to increase sales online by about twenty percent. I say, 
all right, let's do this, right? Like I, I get charged up by that and I roll up my sleeves and I say, all right, let's figure this out. You know, that to me, perversely, I find fascinating and interesting and I want that challenge. And uh, listen, I've, I've worked for businesses that were growing like crazy. And in a sense, that, that's sort of easy. And you've got this tailwind and you do pretty much nothing in marketing. You're like, oh, look, our sales are, are moving. My marketing's working, right? Um, I, I think there's something wonderful about being in a, in a much tougher situation and having to come up with every trick in the book. I mean, it's a great stretch for you as an executive, as a marketer, as an e-commerce leader, uh, as a coach, as a mentor in so many ways, it really, really challenges you. And so I've always responded to those situations with this mindset. You know, as a, as a result, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not afraid of going into those situations. You just deal with it because you have to. And it's not, it's not for everybody. Listen, some people want to be in a certain type of business. And if things kind of go awry, then they're probably not the people that you want in that turnaround situation. But other people, you know, they're just, they're cut from a bit of a different cloth. I think I worked for that CFO that you referred to. <laughs> <laughs> we all have. <laughs> so you, you did spend some time at uh, BB Stores and, and Francesca's. In those businesses, what was your title in, in them? I had a couple, I guess. But at, at uh, BB, when I left, I was the chief digital officer. When I left Francesca's, I was the chief marketing officer. So how would you describe the difference, uh, and, and I think it evolves with each passing year, but um, how would you describe the difference between a, a, a CDO and a CMO? And maybe the, the tag-on question there is, you know, where do you see the, the evolution going of that kind of a role in, in retailers? So that's a, it's a very good question. I, I would say there's not tremendous definition around those roles with respect to the titles, uh, nor is there a all that traditional career path to get into one versus the other, the way that you would see, for example, with a CFO role where, okay, majored in accounting and went to work in the finance division and kind of made their way up. And, you know, there's, there's a, a, I think a much more linear career path for certain types of roles. You don't see that so much with CDO and CMO. Now, I think the path will become more linear. When you and I went to college, Mark, there was no digital major. <laughs> you know, I think I graduated the year that Jeff Bezos registered, uh, you know, Amazon.com as a domain name. So, you know, it's it's a lot different now. But certainly, the CMO role at one company could be very much like the CDO role at another company, and it's highly, highly variable, which makes, I think, org structure often a, a challenge because somebody's perception of what it's supposed to be uh, at one company, they go to someplace new and all of a sudden things are a little bit different. And oftentimes these orgs, you know, are really more catered to the people that are in them at that moment in time, as opposed to what the optimal org, you know, should be for the kind of business that you're in. So that, that whole square peg, uh, you know, round round peg in the square hole or square peg in the round hole, uh, sometimes, you know, presents itself. So, uh, yeah, you know, I, I've had, uh, each of those titles, you know, I've had a CDO and CMO and each time I've had them, they have been different and what rolled up underneath me was different. Sometimes it included tech. Sometimes it didn't. Sometimes it included creative. Sometimes it didn't, but all times that CFO that you talked about before came knocking at my door. So understood. <laughs>
Do you have a direct-to-consumer business? I enjoy connecting with guests on this podcast because it reminds me what I love to do, strategic and tactical consulting for businesses like yours. If you'd like to speak with me about your business and see how you can add a fresh set of eyes to your team, contact me at mark at detailsinteractive.com. Now let's get back to the marketing playbook. You, you had a, a nice run at Francesca's and, and then you leave there and you go back and, and do some consulting on your own. And then you pivoted uh, that or, or leveraged that into the role that you have today at Alex Partners. So for those that don't know, uh, tell us a little bit about um, Alex Partners and your role there. So Alex Partners is an extraordinary firm. Uh, they're about uh, 20 something offices around the world. What they historically have best been known for is restructuring and turnaround work. So Alex Partners is the is the company that turned around General Motors, uh, and they've done this type of work with a lot of uh, very very well known brands out there. Um, but we do a lot of other things, and uh, I am a director there, uh, out of the Paris office. And my my focus, uh, you know, kind of tying back to to my whole background, is over the e commerce and, and marketing areas. And, you know, you know, we're, we're recording this, you know, September, you know, 2022, we're two and a half years, you know, into COVID and, and hopefully you know, things have calmed down um, a lot more than they had been. Digital business exploded, uh, you know, during COVID. But now I think, you know, many businesses are seeing, you know, that that COVID bump. Uh, they acquired lots of new customers during that time. Some of them uh, seeing that those customers are not performing the way uh, customers, new customers that they had acquired previously are behaving. So are you seeing a lot of this post-COVID hangover in, in companies that you're working with? Well, for sure. It's, it's something that you see generally across the board, right? There are inflationary concerns in a macro sense, but there are many more specific uh, examples of inflation and, and maybe not how you and I would describe inflation as a consumer, but inflation in prices of uh, cost per click, for example, on, on Google is something that a lot of brands uh, are experiencing. Uh, they're also uh, often seeing less productivity in some of the social channels. And, you know, again, when you have a tailwind, and for e-commerce businesses, COVID was largely a tailwind, you start thinking, oh, well, this is really working. Things are great. You know, we're on fire. Um, but was it the tailwind or was it the things that you're actually doing? And it's really important to be able to decouple one from the other, uh, just as it's important to be able to decouple the work that you're doing from a headwind when you're facing that. And you know that that I think is is what ties into long term planning, being able to set reasonable targets and goals. Um, but you know I, I think a lot of the work that I've been doing lately, uh, whether with Alex Partners or, or before uh, I, I joined the firm, was really around how do we get more efficiency uh, out of our marketing spend? Uh, how do we structure the team better in order to manage growth um, or manage other things that are happening in the business? You know the relationship between the merchandising and marketing, I think is always a critical one for an e-commerce site to understand. And of course, having a site experience that, uh, that supports those things. And I find you know, very often you, you'll find a brand that has extraordinary marketing, amazing site experience, but maybe the merch isn't quite right. You know? Or it could be, you've got great merch, you've got a great site experience, but the marketing is not hitting. And you need one of those things to be off for the entire site to be in trouble. And so being able to tie those things together in a way that's holistic, 
I think is extraordinarily important. You know, there are a lot of agencies out there that, that might specialize in one area. You can find a great marketing agency. You can find uh, an, an agency that manages the site experience for you. But to find, to find one that can help pull it all together uh, into a very compelling story to the consumer, I, I think is a big challenge. Yeah, I, I think your your call out about uh, inflationary, uh, you know, aspects, um, you know, we're seeing it in businesses that I work with. We are seeing it in cost per click for sure. Uh, the privacy issues, you know, certainly impacted what was happening with Meta and other social uh, channels, and you know, also seeing the cost of outbound shipping. You know, and so many of the brands that we work with continue to use free shipping with, you know, with a hurdle, you know, perhaps, but, um, you know, I'm seeing businesses where outbound shipping costs are up 15% year over year, same package, same package weight, but, you know, that is really eating into profitability. So good calls. You know, I, I've talked a lot on the show about uh, shiny object syndrome, um, where we all become enamored with something that is kind of new and, and fun. What are you seeing that's new and fun in the digital space? I hear a lot of people talking about AI because maybe they think they should be talking about AI. I, I, I think actually applying AI is 99% of the time not the role of the brand. It's the role of the providers that are serving the brand. And you know, for a brand to say, oh, we're going to develop this AI stuff to do this or that, the other, um, I you know, I find is is often a, a bit out of line, and it's very difficult to quantify what it's going to do. But it's a it's a buzzword. It's something that people think that they need and they should have, uh, and so I I consider that that is that is firmly in in the quadrant of shiny objects in my book. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, and, and AI, you know, much like other shiny objects have been, you know, it's, it's kind of in, in favor right now. And there are so many places that it seemingly is playing, it, it could be as simple as recommendation engines on your site. Um, but one of the areas that's interesting to me, I'm wondering if, if you've had any experience is is using AI to improve price optimization on sites. You know, we we've got, you know, items that we need to mark down because we need to move them. You know, I think I'm going to generalize. Most businesses are still using the the history and the legacy uh, heritage information that the planners and the allocators and whoever is is pricing product is using, you know, from their experience. But there is seemingly technology that should help me to understand that if I have a $50 retail item and I have a thousand units and I know how many I've sold in the past at $50, I should be able to figure out what the optimal price to move through my aged inventory is. That's accurate. Uh, and it's a very good call out. Now, I have not specifically worked on a business that would say real-time impact the, the price of products. And when we're talking uh, something similar to to Jet, right? Or Amazon, I believe, does some of that as well. A lot of the companies I've worked with are their brands, right? And so the price that you see tends to be a little bit more consistent. It's not moving around uh, the way that it would work at maybe another company. Um, but I, I certainly have seen opportunities to apply what you're talking about. And I'll, I'll give you one example. There was a, a company I was looking at where no matter what the item was that was on, on Markdown, it was always say 50% off. 
And it could have literally one unit left and they could move that unit probably at 10% off or 20% off, keep it in the markdown section and gain a little bit of margin in the process. But just sort of as a simplification, they said, okay, everything that's on sale is 50% off, as opposed to having something that takes into account sales velocity, historical trends, remaining inventory, we supply, et cetera, those types of things, all important inputs for uh, whether it's a, a more sophisticated algorithm that you're describing, or really just a uh, you know, elbow grease type of approach to we're going to manually impact what the prices are of our products that are either on promotion or full on in clearance uh, in order to maximize the, both the sales potential, but also the margin dollars that we're gonna get from those sales. Last tough question. Uh, before we get to some layups, um, and I always call it the the A word attribution. Uh, you know, oh, we, no. <laughs> <laughs> you, you hit it a bit before, but you know, let's talk about you know, just, and we could talk for hours about attribution and media mix. Is, is this something that you're trying to help your clients with? How to best understand where to take their available marketing budget and spend it to optimize whatever they're trying to optimize for your, you know, top line sales or return on ad spend? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a rather considerable part of the work that I've done is trying to, to balance the funnel, right? There are brands out there that are maybe too, too top heavy on the funnel. And, you know, it ends up not being very productive from a ROAS perspective, and they don't necessarily have some of the things that you need lower funnel to capitalize on the brand awareness and the traffic driven. Uh, and then, of course, there are brands that have the opposite problem. They are only doing bottle of funnel, bottom of funnel, because maybe there's, there's a dictate that ROAS has to be above a certain number, um, you know, and maybe there's a goal tied to that, which can be a short-sighted way of approaching things. Because listen, if you say, uh, Eric, uh, you know, we need you to, to get conversion over 3%. Well, I guarantee you, I can do that. I'll just stop marketing. Right? <laughs> or I'll, I'll only do email marketing. Or I'll do things that are super, super productive. Hey, affiliate. Affiliates can be over 3% all day long, right? And so having the right balance of spend across these initiatives, I think is very important. But I also think that from sort of the, the, the highest levels in the organization, even the board level, an understanding of having balance across the funnel is critical. And it means very different things for OAS, depending on the initiative that you're investing in. I also think that it's very important for brands to understand the relationships between channels within the funnel. Because something that is a one-to-one ROAS, you know, which on the surface and on paper may not look so good, is the thing that makes the 10 to 1 ROAS 10 to 1 instead of maybe 7 to 1. And so you can't look at these, these channels in a silo. You have to understand the relationships that they have with one another. And there are, there are tools to do that, right? I mean, you know, we're talking about attribution. There are tools even in, in Google Analytics, right? There are the, uh, the uh, I forget the name of the, the, the tool, but it's the, the contribution to conversion uh, or the, the uh, assisted conversions tool in Google Analytics, which I absolutely love to see what this channel did somewhere further up the, the, the funnel is one of the fundamental inputs that you have to take into consideration when you're looking to rationalize spend across the marketing channels. 
Yeah, and and that that assisted analysis is it's so interesting to me because when it first you know developed, you know you'd look at you know the lion's share of your your paths and they were much shorter than they are now. You know over over time as people became more sophisticated, there were more points of contact, um, and people were researching. You know it's it, I think it's elongated. Um, the number of touch points along the way. So that's why we always leave attribution to the end because nobody ever really wants to talk about it. So, yeah. Have, have you, have you run across, uh, this is, I guess, uh, it's 64th. Uh, and, and I didn't, I didn't actually uh, come up with a solution for you. <laughs> Has anybody figured it out? Please nah, tell me. No, nobody's figured it out. We all have our own little uh, methods uh, of madness. So all right. Well, we're getting to the end of the show. We do this uh, two-minute drill, seven questions, one or two word answers. You ready? You got it. Okay. A brand that you admire or that inspires you? Lacoste. And now we know it's a crocodile. <laughs> the favorite app on your phone? Fantasy football. Okay. You're getting ready for fantasy football. Oh, I'm ready. I, I, and you're in France, so you're watching games in the middle of the I'm night, I imagine. Oh, you're no, not I'm not watching. I'm sleeping. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I have to wake up to the bad news. All right. Last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Collins Publishing. Okay. I know this is supposed to be a one or two word answer, but... That's okay. It was a book that I had to get for my kids for school, and uh, it was not available on Amazon. So I had to literally go to the the publisher's website and order it. Uh, that's Harper Collins, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But it was collins.co.uk, I believe, was the uh, the website. Okay. Something that you're not good at, but wish that you were. I wish I were a little more fearless. Oh, okay. Charitable organization that you're passionate about. Anything related to pets. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Flight. And other than family, what's your most prized possession? All right, maybe this is cheating a little bit, but I would say it's it's anything that I have from the past that relates to family. It's old family pictures. It is old letters. It is uh, anything that helps me feel more rooted in my my family and the long line of people that uh, basically led to me. Uh, I like that one. Um, where can people reach out to you on uh, social media, Eric? So I am uh, mainly a LinkedIn and Facebook guy, and I am at Lodier on both of those. L-A-U-T-I-E-R. Okay, great. And uh, you know we'll have all that in the show notes. Uh, so this was great. Uh, it was nice to see you uh, again. I uh, really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Um, I know you could be out um, on the beach somewhere in the south of France. <laughs> And, uh, you know, perhaps we'll come visit uh, someday. I, I think I mentioned my wife and I had an amazing trip uh, to the south of France years ago and uh, definitely one of our most favorite spots. Awesome. Well, you are welcome anytime. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Eric Lodier for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, Eric has been thinking hard about the future of shopping. In his mind, we're going to be able to touch your finger to your phone over the product you want, and with that, the item will be charged to your method of payment, and then will be shipped. No adding of data to a checkout path, all with the intention of reducing friction in the shopping experience. Number two, you too can be a digital marketer and consultant. All you need to be able to do is to sing. 
Well, as you've heard before, just because you start your career down on a path does not mean that you're destined to stay on that path for life. Eric speaks about his early days and how he leveraged his personal experiences to build out a solid career. And number three, I loved Eric's comment about the CFO who comes in and asks you to do things that are seemingly impossible. As he said, don't be afraid. Just deal with it because you have to. Everything we're asked to do is not going to be easy. Take some time to think through the options and then systematically establish a game plan. You'll make some mistakes along the way, but the challenge will be refreshing. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details. 